know throughout the week, every time we confess our sins, but need constantly to remember that those who confess their sins and turn to Christ are forgiven in the presence of God and need not fear the wrath of God because it was already poured out on Christ. This is our comfort as we come before God now to worship Him. Let us then open God's Word that He would teach us and instruct us this morning We'll turn to several places in Scripture. First to Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 45. And we'll read verses 18 through 25. As you can see on the board, our text will ultimately be Philippians chapter 2. And, and in that text, Paul applies the language of Isaiah 45 to Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the reason for reading through this text. And you can look for that as we read. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has, has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So far from Isaiah 45, let's also turn now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. And here we find words of the Lord Jesus that are in keeping with, with the, the message of our text in Philippians 2 on self-denial and service and humility. And so we read in John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, only my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
And you are, you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So far from the Gospel of John. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 138, stanza 3. The text to which we'll be giving special attention this morning is the next part of the letter of Philippians, which we've been working through. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And so let's read that text now. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to the Philippians, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So far, the words of our text. brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we think through some of the the commands in this text, I would say this has to be one of the hardest texts in the New Testament to apply personally to my own life. And I imagine the same is true for you. Think of verse 3, for example. Probably one of the hardest and most unnatural commands in the whole of Scripture. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Think about that command in the age of the selfie. The selfie, maybe some of you saw this in the news a few years ago. The selfie was declared word of the year in in 2013 by by several dictionaries. And many people commented that that's very symptomatic of our times. That we live in the age of the selfie. It's all about the self. Paul says, let each of... Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Is that a verse 
we can apply? Is that even possible to apply? Certainly it's challenging in our age. The same is true of of verse 4. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So making the interests of others a priority in our lives. This is hard. This is not natural, least of all in our own age. Let me explain the context where, that Paul is writing from so we can understand where he's, where he's going with this text. The, the first verse of chapter 2 has, has a number of these conditionals. He says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, and so forth, then he says, do these things. What does Paul mean when he writes all these ifs? Is he suggesting that there might not be? Any encouragement in Christ or comfort from love or, or, or so on and so forth? No, Paul, Paul can't possibly be saying these things might not exist. So why does he write, write these ifs? Well, these, these ifs show us that there's some sort of dialogue happening between Paul and, and the Philippian church. So, so to give the broader context then, in chapter 1, Paul is... Ha- we saw this last week, Paul is giving his perspective on his own sufferings, and we saw his perspective on the conflicts in Rome, his, his perspective on all that he was going through, and he gives that to them in order to encourage them to also live lives that are worthy of the calling they received. We saw all of that uh, last week. And then in, in, in this text, Paul now continues working from that command to to let your lives show the worthiness of your calling. And now he gets into the specifics. And it seems like he had received some sort of communication from the Philippians that he's writing back in response to. You can even see that a little bit in, in, verse, in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord that now at length you've revived your concern for me. So, He must have gotten some communication that indicated that. You can see the same in in actually chapter, the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 26. He talks about how how Paul, how Epaphroditus is distressed because you heard that he was ill. So somehow he knew that the Philippians heard that Epaphroditus was ill, if you can follow that, that logic. So there's communication happening back and forth. And it seems like the Philippians would have written something to the effect of, Paul, we want to encourage you in Christ. We want to comfort you with our love. We want to participate with you in the Spirit, or something to that effect. And so Paul is now saying in chapter 2, look, Philippians, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any encouragement in Christ that you can give me, if there's any way that you can participate with me in the Spirit, do it. By completing my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that's his exhortation to them. He's saying, if you want to support me, if you want to be with me in spirit, if you want to comfort me, do that by being of full accord together. That will be my comfort. He says, that would really complete my joy. If I could hear that you Philippians were all of the same mind, that you're sharing in the same love, that you're in total, full accord and of one mind. Now those, those, those four short expressions are really four ways of saying the same thing. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Those are, those are all essentially saying the same thing. And so he says, this is how you may complete my joy. Now why is this the one thing that Paul asks of them. There's all kinds of ways they, they could have participated with him in the Spirit and, and comforted him, but he says, this above everything would really complete my joy. Well, Paul chooses this because this is probably the single biggest threat to the continued existence of that church in Philippi. Rivalry and selfish ambition were the single biggest threat to the future of the church. Christians putting themselves before Christ and producing rivalry, dissension, 
and disorder. This, this theme is so pervasive to the whole letter of the Philippians and, and really to all of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament. You might think of the conflicts in Corinth or the divisions in, in Ephesus or the, or the false apostles that were stirring up conflict in, in 2 Corinthians. This, this rivalry, this selfish ambition, was Paul, Paul saw this as the greatest threat to the continued existence of the church. Christians that choose to put themselves before Christ. And so we see Paul says, if there's one thing you can do to complete my joy, it would be by being unified, by being of the same mind. And we can see Paul is is writing this, as we saw last week, from the context of Rome, where he was witnessing exactly this kind of disorder and selfish ambition and disunity. We saw that in in chapter 1, where he was talking about some brothers in the church who preach Christ, evidently fairly faithfully because he rejoices in that preaching, and yet they're doing it not from goodwill, but from rivalry and from selfish ambition. And so he says, you Philippians, now that I've I've given you that example and warned you about that, if there's one thing you can do to complete my joy, it's by being unified in the same mind and sharing the same love. Now, we should notice Paul is not calling them just to external unity. He's not calling them to agreeing to disagree or working together under the same banner in spite of their differences. This text has often been been taken to mean that. It's a call to, to ecumenicism or a call to getting along in spite of our differences. And there is some truth to that. We ought to get along even when there are differences. And there are texts that that specifically call us to do that. But notice that's not exactly what Paul is calling them to do here. He's not saying, put aside your differences. He's saying, come to agreement. He's saying, be of the same mind. Share the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. So it doesn't mean just agreeing to disagree or agreeing to set aside our differences. It's a call to agreement. In fact, it's you might even say it's the opposite of what many in the ecumenical circles would want, where they would say diversity is a good thing. It's like a flower that makes the church more beautiful. That's not how Paul sees diversity of opinion in the church. He sees it as a threat. There's diversity of personalities, there's diversity of gifts, but there's one truth. And he calls us to unity in that one truth. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we we ought to then disregard or or put away from us all Christians that disagree on on any issue at all. There certainly are texts that call us to, to recognize our unity of spirit in spite of our differences, And we can certainly apply that in our own day. But the call here is ultimately, even with those who disagree with us, to work towards agreement. So we we might apply this, for example, to, to our Baptist brothers and sisters. We can recognize in them the same faith. And there's nothing wrong with working together as churches. But the call from Paul is not that we just ignore our differences and never speak about them, but that we work together towards agreement. That always ought to be our goal as Christians, even when we work together with other churches who do disagree with us on issues that that do matter. The call is to work towards agreement. That that might take, as it it certainly will with, with our Baptist brothers and sisters, that will take hundreds of years of persistent, sustained effort. But the call is not to say, this is too much work, let's just get along. It's to say, we can work on this, we can come to agreement, because we all share the same spirit. So that's the, that's the spirit of verses 2 through 4. It's a plea for the Philippians towards unity, and not just unity of, of church, not just unity of, of one name working together, but unity of mind, unity of doctrine, unity of love, and unity of, of spirit. But the biggest obstacle to that unity 
is the fact that most Christians seem to not want it. And, and that's true of all of us to a certain degree. We find ourselves, or we, we find within ourselves, a selfish ambition, a rivalry that causes us to, to not want unity. And that's what Paul is, is getting at in verses 3 and 4 when he talks about selfish ambition and conceit. And the opposite of humility or looking out only for our own interests. Those are the things he warns us about and calls us away from. Those are the things that keep the church from unity. And, and we can think of how Paul was dealing with that in Rome as he was writing this with these people preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. We can think of Paul having dealt with it also in, in Corinth, if you're familiar at all with the, the letters to the Corinthians. He was constantly dealing with this disunity, this rivalry. He talks about people that said, I am of Paul, and other people that said, I am of Apollos, and they divide into these groups and then attack one another. And that is our human nature. You can see it, really, if you go almost anywhere. You go to any workplace, and one of the first things we tend to do in the workplace is we form our enemies. We figure out who our enemies are, and we spend the rest of our time in the workplace mixed up in these rivalries. Many of you know exactly uh, what, what that is like. And, and this obviously happens in the church as well, and that's why Paul is warning them specifically about this. We divide into groups and we attack one another and it's not out of a love for the truth, but it's out of a love for our own glory. It's self-exaltation. It's conceit. It's the opposite of, of humility. Now obviously Paul is not saying you should never divide over anything. There are divisions that, that are rooted in legitimate concerns. In fact, Paul admits that in one place to the Corinthians. He says there, there ought to be some divisions among you because that's how those who are genuine will be recognized. So certainly Paul is not saying you should never divide or if there's division it can only ever be because of selfish ambition or pride. But at the same time, Pride and selfish ambition exist within the human heart and constantly stir up division and enmity. And so those cases where, where division is a good thing, where it's a legitimate thing, they're easy to recognize because those who are genuine, as Paul, as Paul says, they speak the truth plainly. They call one another to God's word. They do that, do that in a spirit of love. Those who divide for illegitimate reasons speak slanderously, speak quietly from their different corners, speak behind one another's backs, and they speak in order to exalt themselves, not because they want to see the other side come to a knowledge of the truth. And that's why overall, when you find division in the church, you find it criticized, not promoted. That's why Paul criticizes the Corinthians for the divisions that existed among them. What was happening among them was not a Christian uh, reality. It was not a, a good thing in, in the church. And the same is true in, in Ephesus, where you also find division between the between those who would like the church to be more Jewish and those who would like the church to be more Gentile. You, you can see the same thing in, in James. James looks at the divisions in the church in James 4, and he says, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? And he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. More often than not, when division exists in the church, it exists for that reason, quarreling and fighting because of covetousness and selfish ambition. Now, we can be thankful that that was not happening, on a large scale at least, in, in the Philippian church. There's no evidence that suggests that that was the case. There, there is a case in chapter 4 of two women. You can see that in chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, two women that were not getting along, and Paul there calls them to, to agreement, to, to come back together. But overall, that was not the case with, with the Philippian church as a whole. Here, Paul is seeing this as a reality that can pop up because it exists within the human heart. 
And so when I preach this to you, I can preach this not because we are a divided church, but just like Paul, because division is a spirit that exists within us. Selfish ambition and conceit are temptations that exist within every human heart, even within Christians. And so we can be warned by reading this, even if division doesn't exist within our church, we can be warned that this is something that very easily shows up. And it's in that spirit that Paul then also warns the Philippian church. So his call to them again in verse 3 is, Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but instead, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the, the antidote, so to speak, that Paul gives to that spirit of division. He calls us to examine ourselves. Do you count others within this church as more significant than yourselves? Can you do that? That's the call, and that's how we should also examine ourselves. And, and the same is for, true of verse 4. Are you looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then Paul gives us, as an example, the, the, the example of Christ Jesus himself, to show what this ought to look like when we're doing this properly. You can see this in, in verses, all the way from verses 5 to 11. So he gives the example of Christ. Now I should say, just as, as a preface to these verses, uh, most scholars say that Paul is quoting a hymn. And you can, you can see that in some Bibles. The ESV doesn't put this as, as poetry, but some Bibles do. They, they, they write this the way that they write the Psalms in, in, in poetry uh, format. Um, and so many people say that Paul is quoting a hymn. That's possible. It could be that Paul is quoting an old Christian home, uh, an old Christian hymn, but it could at the same time just be a, a an elevated sort of prose, a, an elevated way of of plain speech. There, there definitely are poetic qualities, and you can see that especially in the Greek. He uses unusual Greek words, and, and there's, a sen- there's a bit of a rhythm in the way that he writes it in the Greek. But that doesn't mean that it has to be a hymn that, that existed before the letter to the Philippians, that he's quoting some old hymn. That could be the case, but Paul was also a gifted writer. It could be that Paul is just writing this with a, with a, poetic, uh, with a poetic tone. There, there are some theological questions that pop up also in, in these verses, and some very difficult ones. To give you an example, what does Paul mean when, when he says that Christ existed in the form of God? Does, does the form of God mean God? Or does the form of God mean almost God? Or like God? Obviously, in the Arian debate, when, when the Arians question the divinity of Christ, they would point to this verse and say, look, Paul didn't say Christ existed as God, but as the form of God. So they took that to mean almost God. And, and there's a second uh, challenge in these verses. That's in, in verse 6 as well, where he says, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Is Paul saying there that, that Christ was already equal with God and, and didn't consider that something to hold on to? Or does that mean Christ was not equal with God and didn't try to be? That's usually, when we, when we use the word grasp, that's usually a word that refers to something we don't have in our hands, but we're trying to get into our hands. We're grasping for something. And so when Paul says, Christ did not count equality with things, with God a thing to be grasped, it almost sounds as if, as if he's saying Christ was not yet equal with God. Now, on the first question, uh, most ancient Christian interpretation, all the way back from, from the early 300s and probably before then, though we don't have records, 
before then on this text, most of them take this form of God to mean the the position and the very nature of God. And, And form in the Greek, was actually a common philosophical word. So, so let me invite you into, into the Greek way of thinking. When, when they talked about a form, they were talking not about just an outward appearance that isn't the actual thing. They were talking about the very essence of a thing. So, so Plato, the great Greek philosopher, he taught that for every earthly thing that exists on earth, there's a perfect heavenly form. So here's an earthly pulpit. In heaven, there's the perfect form of a pulpit. This is an imitation of the greater heavenly reality. That's how the Greeks thought when they talked about forms. So a, a good mathematical example would be, you can't find anywhere on earth a perfect circle. You know, the closer you zoom in, the more imperfections you're going to find. It doesn't matter how good a circle it is. But we know that circles do exist. It's a real thing, a circle. And, and yet it exists as an idea, as a concept. The, the, the Greeks, in their philosophy, would take that to be the form. That's the perfect thing. What you find on earth is the imperfect thing. And so most ancient Christian interpreters, when they read Philippians... Uh, and they read this text, they would say, Paul is talking about Christ existing as the very essence of God. It's only in English today that, we, that it seems to sound more like, like he is less than God when we talk about the, the form of God. But in, in the ancient Greek, form of God meant God himself. So that, that, that answers the question, the, the first question, what does he mean by the form of God? And that's why the, the NIV, when it translates this, it says, who being in very nature, God. So, so it's taking form to mean nature, the essence of God himself. The second question is harder to answer, though. What does Paul mean when he says, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? And even within Orthodox Christians, there are two main camps there. Some say this is an equality that Christ already had. That, that it was equality with God that he already had, but he was willing to let go of it. And that's how hymn 23, which we're going to sing later, hymn 23 interprets it that way. Christ already existed as equal, as equal with God, but he let go of that. The other way of reading this is that, that it's an equality that Christ did not yet have. What do we mean by that? Obviously, we acknowledge that, that God the Son and God the Father are equal in majesty. They are equally God. And yet they are not equal in terms of relationship. And it's good for us to, to recognize that. The, the Son is begotten. The Father is not begotten. The Son submits to the Father. The Father does not submit to the Son. So they're, they're not equal in, in the sense of relationship. And so even though Christ was God, it, it, it's, a, it's a legitimate interpretation to read this as saying, even though Christ was God, he did not strive after or grasp after that equality in authority. He did not want to be the, the one who gives orders, but he allowed himself to be ordered by God. He submitted to God. And, and in my opinion, this is the better interpretation of, of this text. That's what grasp usually means. It's striving for something you don't have. And so Christ, even though he was he was God himself, in nature, God himself, equally, eternally God. He didn't need to be the one who gives orders. He was willing to be the one who submits. And that seems to be what Paul is saying that fits also then with his application. We don't need to strive after selfish ambition, after being the greatest, but we can look at Christ himself, who though he was God, did not need to be the one who gives the Father orders, but was humble, was willing to be obedient. Well, however, however way you interpret those verses... The point is still clear. Christ 
was not serving his own glory, but instead humbling himself in obedience to serve the Father's glory. And that's the application that Paul then gives to to the Philippians. Do not serve your own glory, but follow the example of Christ in submitting yourselves in obedience to the Father to live for his glory and to serve one another in the church. There's one one more difficult theological question, if you can endure one more. And that's the question, in what sense did Christ empty himself? Some have taken this to mean Christ actually gave up being God for a time in order to live as a man on earth, and then afterwards he became God again. Or some would say he he gave up certain divine qualities, like power or, or knowledge, and then he got those back again later. Is that what Paul means? I would say it's certainly not, and, and one of the proof of that is that you see Christ showing his divine qualities throughout his earthly ministry. He knows other people's thoughts. He performs miracles. So he, he of course, retained his divinity, but it's it's a metaphorical then it's a metaphorical expression that Paul is using, and it's the same Greek words as you find in Isaiah fifty three. That's a famous text. We all know Isaiah fifty three. That's the fifth gospel, and and there in Isaiah fifty three, when it talks about the suffering servant, it says he he poured himself out. And that's the same Greek word in, in the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament that Paul uses here. Just as Christ poured himself out, so he's calling us then to pour ourselves out, to empty ourselves, and, and thus to, to humble ourselves. And so it refers not to his divine essence, he didn't empty himself of that, but he emptied himself of his glory, of his honor of his rights. He gave up his rights that he had as God in order to serve us lowly people. So it doesn't mean he emptied himself of of his divinity, but he, he emptied himself of his honor, his rights, in order to live a lowly life in the service of God and in the service also of us. So the focus is on his, his lowliness, his obedience. And so Paul says he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's about as low as any person can possibly go. When we think of the, the crucifixion, often we think just of the, the physical torment of being crucified. But of course, it was also a horrible spiritual torment. It was so degrading to be crucified naked and to hang there for days until a person finally died. It was about as degrading, about as loathsome a death as one could possibly die. And so the point here, when he says, even death on a cross, is how lowly Christ was willing to be in service to God. He didn't have any pride that said, I'm too, I'm too honorable, I'm too noble to go this low for the sake of service to God. That is beneath me. There was no point at which Christ did that. And of course, the application that Paul, that Paul is getting to is, is there then any point at which we Christians can say, no, that's beneath me, that's too low for me in the service of God. I can't go that low. I can't humble myself that far. He says, look to the example of Christ. And if Christ, our Lord, Christ who is God, is willing to go that low, then there ought never to be any point at which we Christians say, that's too far for me. And so, if, if you consider then the example of Christ, and then reflect on, the, on the, the selfish ambition and conceit that Paul is dealing with in Rome and warning the Philippians about, you can see how, how opposed these philosophies really are. It is wrong in the greatest degree for any Christian to still be self-serving or self-exalting after they see what Christ has done and how low Christ 
has gone for them. If we're still self-exalting after seeing the example of Christ, then that can only mean we don't understand or don't appreciate what Christ has done. Self-exaltation, if we serve Christ, self-exaltation needs to be put to death. And it's good for us to, to then think practically about some ways in which we can do this, putting self-exaltation to death. The, the truth is, we love to find reasons to think much of ourselves or to think little of others. And then by, by degrading others, promoting ourselves. And so whenever someone else, and this is human nature, whenever someone else is more successful at, at business or more popular in relationships or, or just more well-liked, we find ourselves very quickly impugning motives, finding reasons to think less of them so that we can feel better about ourselves. And this is true just as much, sadly, in the church. When another ministry is more successful or another church is more successful, we find ourselves wanting to impugn motives. We become jealous. And and that jealousy manifests itself in criticizing others or seeking out things that might be wrong with those other Christians or those other churches. That's selfish ambition and conceit, and it has no place in the life of a Christian who follows a Christ who humbled himself even unto death on a cross. So again, think of Christ hanging naked, tortured, and, and shameful as shameful can be on the cross. And he did that for you and for me. Is there any place then for you and me to exalt ourselves or to degrade other Christians in order to promote ourselves? When we remember what Christ has done for us, we should recognize intuitively how wrong it is to the utmost degree to exalt ourselves while serving this Christ. And so Paul is urging the Christians in Philippi to humility in service to one another. And notice it's, it's not just humility for humility's sake, but humility for the sake of service and obedience to God. That's why Christ humbled himself to death, so that he could serve and obey God. That's what Christ did, and that's what Paul then calls us to do. It's humility for the sake of God's glory. And, and that's, you can see that in, in verse 11. He says the, the final result of Christ's humiliation was that everyone would confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why Christ humbled himself even to the point of death. Not ultimately so that he would be exalted, but ultimately so that God the Father would get the glory. And so we too then are called to humble ourselves to God because we recognize, as Jesus himself did, that God's glory is worthy of our utmost service and our deepest humiliation. Our own glory is not worthy of a lifetime of service. Your glory is not worthy of that kind of attention. And that's what, that's what we humans by nature do. We give our lives to promoting our own glory. It's not worthy of your life, but God's glory is. And that's the example that we see even of Christ. Even for Christ, his own glory was not worthy of serving, but ultimately he put God's glory above his own. And so if we look now, if we look back at verses 3 and 4, those verses that I said at the beginning are probably the hardest commands in the New Testament, the most unnatural commands that you, that you find almost anywhere If you look back at those, you'll recognize those are only possible. To keep those is only possible when we're so captivated by the glory of God and living for God that we start to recognize that we are nothing in comparison with God. That His is a glory that's worth living for and dying for and humbling ourselves for and our own glory is not. 
And so we see even Jesus Christ himself was motivated by the glory then of the Father. And the final result is that Christ himself was glorified. That's what verse 9 through 11 says. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God gave him the name that's above every name. And, and that name is the name of Yahweh. And that's why we read from Isaiah 45. Uh, we see God, Yahweh, it says, thus declares Yahweh, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul says, that is true of Christ. He was given that name, the name that's above every name, the name Yahweh, God himself. And, and so there's, there's an application that he's giving there, just as Christ humbled himself for the glory of the Father, but was exalted, so you too, as you humble yourselves for the glory of God, can trust that God will, in his time, in his way, exalt you. It's worth it, even for the sake of your own glory, you too will ultimately be exalted if you follow Christ first in humbling yourselves in service and obedience to God. And, and that's, that's Paul's, Paul's point then to, to the Philippians. And it's the same point that the Lord Jesus himself gave. For example, in Matthew 23, he says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will ultimately be exalted. It's the same thing you can find in in James 4, in that same context where he's talking about the the rivalries and and the the fights and quarrels within the church. He says in, in James 4 verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is the final... That is the final destination for those who humble themselves in service to God. They can rest confident that their glory, as small as it is, as as unworthy as it is, their glory will not be forgotten. Those who live for their glory on this earth, their glory will be forgotten. But those who live for the glory of God will ultimately be exalted. Their glory will not be forgotten. And that's Paul's point then to, to the Philippians. It's important to remember the, the status and the position of Christians in eternity will not be the same as the status and position of Christians here on earth. Here on earth, we are called to be lowly. We are called to serve, not just one another, but even to serve the world in humility, to be servants to our communities, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. We're called to a very lowly position of service, but our status, our position in eternity will not be the same. It will be a glorified example exalted position. Many who are now low will then be exalted very high. And so we live here setting our sights on eternity and not on the glory or privileges that we can obtain here on earth. That's the sort of thing that produces rivalry and dissension in the church, living for the glory of the here and now, for the privileges we can obtain here and now. We're called to set our sights on eternity. God will glorify us. Let us be lowly here and now. So it's good to think then about some ways in which we can apply these verses practically. And it does require some, some soul-searching. We should look in ourselves for signs of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and conceit. Do we rejoice in unrighteousness? That's an expression Paul uses in, in 1 Corinthians 13 as, as the opposite of love. Do we do that? Do we rejoice when others stumble? Do we enjoy watching others stumble because it makes us feel better about ourselves? That's a sign of selfish ambition and conceit. Do we find discord or rivalry and disharmony within ourselves or within the church? The truth is all of us are guilty of, of these, these realities of serving ourselves and thereby producing rivalry, disharmony, and dissension. 
do we consider others better than ourselves? Surely that's the hardest command of all. You can think of, I thought as I was reflecting on this, of the application even just for husbands and wives. I've said in, in premarital counseling before, whatever commands you find in Scripture are applied twice as much in your marriage. If you're called to love your neighbor, you're doubly called to love the neighbor who sleeps right next to you. The, the commands in Scripture are always twice as much true of, of your own family. And so, do you consider others better than yourselves within your own family. You can, you can think, I'm thinking especially of an application for husbands. It's very easy for husbands because they often have important roles in the workplace or in society in other ways, or as elders to consider themselves more important than their wives. Are we guilty of that as, as husbands? Do we take advantage of the honor that society might give us, that society might not give our wives? Or do we rightly recognize our wives as more significant than ourselves? Remember, those who are lowly here on earth will be exalted in heaven. Do you humble yourself even in front of your wife? And, of course, the application goes the other way as well. Do you consider wives, do you consider your husbands as more significant than yourselves? Do you make yourselves lowly in order for God to ultimately exalt you? So that's something to think about for for husbands and wives. It's something to think about for elders and, and members in the congregation as well. Do you elders consider yourselves as less significant than the people under your care? That's the calling. If you're going to serve them properly, you must humble yourselves and recognize how highly God regards the people in, in your care. And the same is true for all of us, whatever role we have in the church. We're called to, to, to see those around us as more significant, more exalted than ourselves. And to do that, the call is to constantly look towards Christ. The only way to fulfill those unnatural, almost impossible verses is by setting your eyes on Christ by recognizing where Christ has gone for you and for the glory of God. The more we look at Christ, the easier it will be for us to humble ourselves and to regard others as better than ourselves. And so that involves going to Christ again and again and again. And that involves then that that daily crucifying and denying of oneself that Christ himself uh, spoke of. He said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look to Christ then, follow him, and recognize that that will involve denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. And in all of that, don't forget that God will honor and reward your faithful service. Your honor, your glory is safe in God's hands. He will exalt you in the proper time. Your glory won't get lost or misplaced in God's hands. He won't forget to exalt you if you exalt him first. So this is the calling for us. Count others more significant than yourselves, particularly in the realm of service to one another. It's not just, he's not just calling us to a mental, spiritual exercise within our brains or within our hearts, but an actual exercise with our hands. Show that others are more significant than you by your service. That's when you know that that's genuine. And remember, in all of that, You're only following the king of the universe, Christ himself, who himself was highly exalted and who promises that he will exalt you in that same service. Amen.